0: Welcome to episode 249 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 25th of September 2023. I'm Joe, and with me are Fanim. Start to feel good about the Robero Cup. <laughs> Graham. Hello everyone. I'm Popey. Good evening. Yes, thank you for joining us again. You're welcome.
1: Let's get straight on with our discoveries then. Graham, what is Booler? This is quite an old project. It's from 2017, but I spent quite a bit of time playing with it. Baller, it calls itself a digital logic simulator, and it's basically a real-time circuit simulator with logic components, you know, the kind of things and, or, x, or, the way that you build primitive computers, basically. It basically includes these as kind of drag-and-drop elements that you wire up, and then you create a circuit so you might have an input and you put in a one and you might have another input and you put in a zero and then you put in a not gate and then you get the output and then you can create meta components out of that. And there are also other things like there's a virtual seven segment display and uh, an LED outputs and you can make it beep. But you can also, if you know and think about logic, you can build really complicated computers. I mean, people have done it in Minecraft from all of these simple logic components. But it's a really great way of learning and playing with these first principle computing components. It is old. It still runs really well. It's great for education. But the amazing thing is that it was written by three Dutch high school students as a project back at the time. So presumably they're all working for Google now. <laughs> but it's the best thing I've seen for playing and explaining logic to people because it's it's live you can as soon as you put in a one and a zero and the not you can see the output because sometimes it's difficult to describe those things in an abstract way to people who are trying to learn about this stuff so what have you actually done with it i just played around with the gates remarkably i can't remember the name of it but those three dutch students created an entire functional computer with this thing it's, like, got 640 bytes of RAM, and they said the CPU ran at, like, 17 hertz, I think. So if, if you've seen these things before, like in Minecraft, you could put in the values <laughs> like a real computer and do all these calculations and see it ripple through all of this um, The logic circuit that they'd created.
2: I love this. I've been fascinated with this kind of stuff for years. When I was about uh, 23, I worked in a local college in the electronics and electrical engineering department. And we had some stupendously expensive software to do this kind of thing on DOS computers and windows 3.1 computers back in the day in like the early 1990s and there was something called spice and p spice that could do circuit simulation stuff and it was something that the students would do who are on the hnd electronic engineering courses and i would look on and think oh man i want this software and i want to i want to design circuits in this thing and design whole and now it's just like a thing that a few students can knock <laughs> up in node it's amazing
0: so how many circuits did you design in the end then? It's not about the destination, it's about the journey.
1: Yes. Yeah, and it's part of lots of computer curriculums, and it's definitely the best way I've found for teaching people or learning about it yourself if you just want to see what they actually do. I just wish I had these things back when I was doing courses. Mm. It was just so painful. The terrible
3: way we were all taught computers back in the day. Like, if you're lucky, it was a table of
0: NAND. Oh, cool. It's not NAND. Hey. <laughs> Exciting stuff. Fail him Beelink, inspired by Alan Jude's recent purchase, perhaps?
3: It is indeed inspired by Alan Jude's recent purchase. So I have a client who is a charity. Essentially, I'm replacing a router. Their router that they have right now is a PC Engine's router, and it is my old one, so it actually runs only up to a max 100 megs. And their internet connection is 400 megs down and about 40 up, I think. So it actually can't do what their current spec is for their office. And that was no big deal once, you know, the event was taking place because pretty much nothing was going on in the office. But now that they're back there, we're redoing a few things in there. And I was trying to find them something that was reasonable priced and could run OpenSense because I don't want to put PF Sense anywhere near anything anymore because it is just, you know, screw those guys. So, I was looking around on Amazon to try and find something decent. I found, I don't know how to say it, it's like Hunson, or H-U-N-S-N. It's a Chinese manufacturer. They use and processors, and they have multi-ports on the back. The only thing was I was a bit dubious about putting that out somewhere the first time and then saying, you know, it turns out that it doesn't work very well. And some of the reviews I'd read were not great. If anybody has any info on those, yeah, please tell me about it. That'd be great. But... Because I was happened to just pass by, mention it in our secret Telegram chat. Alan saw it, and yeah, he said, "You know, get the Beelink devices." And I had actually found them already. And he said they were great. He had
0: one for his dad. I think it was he was getting it for. Yeah, I think he got one for his dad, but he's also got one for his TV box. Ah, okay. Running Windows, of course, because he's a dirty FreeBSD and Windows guy. Well, that is the funny thing about it. So I bought one, it said it came with DOS on it,
3: and it had two nicks, and that was perfect for what I needed. Actually turned up, it had Windows 11 on it, I think, but I, I, I couldn't say for sure. I blitzed it anyway. Got OpenSense on it now, and yeah, works like a charm. So that's going in there this week. Great bit of kit. If anybody's looking for a double-nick device, it's definitely the one to go for. I got the U59,
0: and a very nice wee piece of gear. They seem very cheap for what you get you know, two NICs. There's one that's um, 16 gigs of RAM and a reasonable number of e-cores the uh the efficiency cores so you're not going to get super performance out of it but it doesn't matter for a router does it
3: no exactly and this thing has i i picked the one that had eight so i th- i paid just about 200 euro for it and i got it from amazon.de so i didn't have to pay the import tax shenanigans of .co.uk so uh yeah no that w- it worked out quite well and yeah it's a it's a nifty wee piece of gear it is disturbing what you can get for 200 quid Surely, buying from Europe, you had to
0: pay all the Brexit taxes. Oh, no, hang on. No, I didn't. Uh Because we have a sane country. Uh, Yes, that's right. I must say, I have quite fancy one, but I just can't justify it at the moment. But if I was in the market for something with two nicks, then I think this would be high up my list.
3: Yeah, it's a shame PC Engine's gone away. They had trouble getting source of the system-on-chip stuff that they had or the processors, I think it was. And I've always used them. They're really good. But yeah, unfortunately, they're closing down now. So sad story.
2: So, Poppy, Snapcraft metrics. Yes. So for a long time now, I've had a bunch of snaps in the Snap store. And when I left Canonical... I had fewer that I had to look after because I wasn't looking after Snapcrafters stuff. But there's a whole bunch of stuff that I published myself personally from my account. Some that I just wanted and some that just looked interesting. So I packaged them up. And the web user interface for Snapcraft, the storefront, if you publish a snap, it shows you metrics for how many devices have your snap installed over the last week. And they keep that history over a period of five years. And so you can look back and see how the number of people has ebbed and flowed for your particular application, and what version people are on, and what OS they're running as well, which is all interesting information, and also what architecture they're on. And this has been around forever, and I've known about this forever, but I only recently stumbled on a function of the Snapcraft command line tool, which is the thing you use to build snaps and publish snaps into the store the command line tool has a thing where you can run Snapcraft metrics and it connects to the store as you, and then downloads that same data in JSON format. And so you can then slice and dice the data locally, rather than just relying on the graphs that are on Snapcraft's website, you can download the metrics and then put them into, I don't know, a spreadsheet or some other metrics, monitoring database or whatever you want and slice and dice the data yourself. So I wrote a little cron job, which is a shell script that just loops through every single one of the steps that I've got published and then loops through all of the metrics. It's a nice nested loop in bash and loops through all of the metrics that can be downloaded and then just iterates through them and downloads all these JSON files so that I can then look at and examine and figure out is the armhf version of this particular package popular and which Linux distributions are people installing it on and what countries, you know, if I need to make sure languages work, you know, in a particular place. But yeah, I didn't realise the command line version worked. And Graham probably knows about this because I think he wrote the documentation or at least
1: touched it last. Yeah, I did write that documentation, but i completely forgotten about it. Yeah, it's not been touched for a year, has it? But I'm glad <laughs> no. it's still working. <laughs> yes,
2: yes, it is still working. I was quite pleased with that because I remember someone talking about it when I worked there, but then I left near, you know, about two years ago almost. And so i just completely forgotten about it. And I, for some reason, I stumbled upon it when looking through the documentation. And uh, I was like, oh, and it works. So yeah, if you want to download the metrics for a Snap you've got published in the store, you can use this.
0: Yeah, but what about Flatpak? Can you do it for that? Well, funny you should say (laughs) that.
2: I already do. Ah. So, for the last years, I can't remember how long, I've been using a Python program written by Andrew Hazen, who's also ex-canonical, and it downloads all the data for every single flat pack in FlatHub. So yes, I can, and it generates little graphs for you. So every day there's a cron job on my server that downloads the stats for all my snaps, because it can only get at my snaps, because that's all I'm uh, authenticated to do. But the FlatHub script goes and gets all the stats for every flat pack in FlatHub. And so I can see which are the most popular applications in FlatHub, uh, which are the most popular frameworks, uh, which apps are being Updated most often, what's new, and because I'm a nerd, I like that kind of data, so yeah, that's been running for years on my server at home. Uh,
0: Well, obviously, Flatpak's more open, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have discovered that this myth about the magic smoke is bullshit because I managed to completely fry a hard drive and there wasn't even any cool magic smoke. So, here's a pro tip for you if you've got a USB enclosure for a hard drive, a uh, 3.5 one that needs power. Don't plug a 19-volt power supply into it <laughs> when it should be a 12-volt one. Because I just saw this flash when I turned Ooh. it on, and then uh, of the lights, because it's a light-up thing. There was no like electrical flashes or anything, just the flash of the lights on the enclosure. And then I was like, what? Press the power button, nothing's happening. What the fuck? And then I realized, oh, shit, I've plugged the, the bloody nuck power supply into the oh. hard drive and um then that was it there was no cool smoke no smell or anything
3: no it was even cooler i see what you did was you converted the magic smoke into light it was so high voltage
0: <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe but yeah now just that hard drive won't spin up at all but i've got one that is exactly the same it's a six terabyte smr barracuda seagate barracuda oh well you, you should convert that into smoke because it'll be shite anyway yes yes yeah 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 whatever anyway so i've got the the one that i bought as a pair and that one is giving me errors so oh <laughs> shuck her i know i know it works but otherwise it's you know i can't rely on it so i thought ah i'll be really clever i'll swap the control boards over yeah that didn't work it's fan up the the naked one but uh Just made weird clicking sounds and wasn't recognised by Linux, and then just wouldn't boot at all when I put it via SATA. So uh, yeah, it looks like I've now got two useless six terabyte (laughs) drives. That's really poor that there's no
2: fuse in there that would have gone pop. Like even like at some point in the chain, you'd expect there to be a fuse to just go bang, and then you'd be able to
0: replace that part, whether it's like surface mount or something. Maybe if I hadn't bought the cheapest enclosure I could find on Amazon.
3: I think you need to watch a bit more Big Clive to understand how shit electronics are out there.
0: (laughs) Yeah. But no, I was surprised. I thought I'd fried the enclosure. I was like, oh man, that's going to cost me 20 quid for a new enclosure now. And then it's like, no, plugged it in via SATA, just fucking nothing. Just doesn't spin up. Totally dead. You're brave to plug that into your board because they could have fried your board as well god knows
3: who knows what was across i i've done the exact opposite of that Funny enough i plugged the low power supply into my caddy and thought that the whole caddy was fucked only to realize several minutes later i was plugging in like the five volt version into the instead of the 12 volt that was definitely a better way to go though
0: <laughs> i would say so yeah you wouldn't think seven volts would make that much difference would you <laughs> He says (laughs) naively, but yes, apparently it does. Apparently hard drive control boards don't like even 7 volts more than they were expecting. So, uh, yeah, that's a bit shit. So definitely don't do that. Okay, this episode is sponsored by people who support us with PayPal and Patreon. Go to latenightlinux.com slash support for details of how you can support us too. For $10 a month on Patreon, you can get access to an RSS feed that contains all the late-night Linux family shows without adverts like this. There's also an option to get just this show ad-free for $5 a month. Some episodes are even released a day or so early for Patreon supporters. The ad market isn't great at the moment, and frankly, it's hard to find sponsors that don't want to do tracking bullshit, but so far, we've managed to resist that. So, if you like what we do, and can afford it, it'd be great if you could support us at latenightlinux.com slash support. Graham, what's EV test or EV test?
1: This is another old one that I probably, everybody else knows about. um, And it's nothing to do with electric vehicles. Sorry, Popey. (laughs) (laughs) This is a bit of the ongoing saga of the headphones that I talked about in our last set of discoveries where I said I'd found headset control for talking to my proprietary headphones. I've got this weird requirement where I'm in meetings and now that I've taken to wandering around the room like an executive when I'm in meetings, (laughs) I want to be able to turn on and off the Google Meet-specific microphone mute because that's the kind of way that we do it at Canonical when people are in meetings and you're kind of indicating whether you're going to talk or not. So you want some way of controlling the mute on and off in Meet and you can bind it to a keyboard shortcut. So I wanted to discover whether the headphone's send any other kind of key signals, because I found out that the music mix controller with headset control, the value of that can be determined using that command. But I don't know what other commands it's sending. So EVTest is an ancient command line tool that you run it, you install it, you run it, it lists all of the input devices connected to your system. So that also includes joysticks and everything. You select one, so select the headphones or a joystick and then press all the buttons and you will see the key codes for all the buttons if they're producing something that your system can use. And so I, I discovered that, in fact, the power button also sends media control key codes like, you know, pause and fast forward and rewind depending on how many times you press it. So I was able to map that to the control D, whatever mute uses for mute and walk around like an executive muting and unmuting myself and i've not tested it but i then discovered a slightly more recent project which is ev test cute qt and it's a gui to the ev test command so that you can visualize those things coming in i've not tested it but it looks like a much better option if you don't want to have a, like a huge list of input commands
2: If you uh, put your hand up to your ear and have to press the button, do you look like a Secret Service agent wanting to speak to the president? Is that?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I do. I do. And that's (laughs) part of the great thing about it. I'm sold. (laughs) Take my money. (laughs) It's a pity because there's a mute button on these. And when you press the mute button, there's a little LED on the microphone that flashes, which, which would be even better. But unfortunately, it doesn't send a signal. Shame.
0: And so you were able to use the data to map the relevant buttons then?
1: To really lengthen this story, in the end, that I actually found... So I use Chrome for work stuff, because it doesn't matter. Um, and <laughs> there's a an add-on for Chrome where you can remap keys to meet functionality, basically. So I was able to do that without having to go and remap key codes in uh, X, because I'm still using X. Oh. And presumably that's not going to affect anything else as well. That's right. When, when um, Chrome isn't like... In front of me, I can use it to control and fast forward Spotify like I normally would. Not that I ever do, actually.
0: Your discoveries are getting more and more niche, Graham, and I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Probably 10 people benefited from the last one, and there's going to be one person out there who's going to benefit from this.
1: It's felt quite a few people got in touch with me to say that thanks for the headset control oh, suggestion. For God's yeah. sake.
0: <laughs> I quite like this one. I like the
2: idea of having weird esoteric buttons though uh, I, I mean i, I particularly liked uh, pressing the side of your head like a like a secret <laughs> service agent but i quite like the idea of having like a magic wand or something with a button mm. in it like just get a bluetooth button and put it inside a kid's toy or something like one of those telephones that kids have and uh, yeah. put the button in the phone so you pick up the phone and start talking and when you pick it up it unmutes you and then when you put the phone down again, it's, it mutes you again.
1: that's great or a dictaphone maybe we could hack a dictaphone together <laughs> yes. pick up a dictaphone to talk yeah. and then
2: modulate your voice so it sounds like you're talking into like a 50 year old
0: cassette tape yes you could use this for obscure game controllers as well presumably
1: anything that creates a, s- a signal basically you can Find that key code and then that's how you remap it in X or with XModMap or do something else. I bought
2: some uh,
1: USB buttons years ago, they're foot pedals, and
2: each one, is one USB device and it's just one foot pedal and you can map them to any key on the keyboard. So you could leave like little foot pedals all over the place and then just like step on them to mute. And then when you need to unmute, you need to get up and walk over to that other part of the room and then press the button again with your foot. It could be fun. Or you could
0: map them to synths even. Double kick drum.
1: Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I've got a wee fit here. I keep meaning to remap (laughs) (laughs) to (laughs) synths.
0: You have to do a skiing motion
1: or something
2: in order to mute.
0: Fail him. USB Guard. So, the reason this one comes in is
3: that we had a modern desktop in inverted commas blog posts about what you should be running. And USB Guard was in it. And it was the first time I'd heard of it because, yeah, I just desktop wise, not up with the the, the cool kids. So, obviously, anybody who doesn't know USB Guard is essentially a an allow-deny list of what can access your computer once you plug it into USB. If you plug in, say, a USB stick for when you're building your B-Link firewall for your client and you've forgotten that you have USB guard on, you'll (laughs) then struggle for maybe 15 to 20 minutes wondering why all of the four USB sticks you have are all fucked and it's all not working. And then realize, oh, yeah, Fuck right, it's USB card. So yeah, USB card's great. I'm gone over to a client's office where they had some issues with um some USB stuff. So they all have the is it called a flapper? I think it's called. It's like this open source device that was crowdfunded for hacking devices and stuff. It's got also it's like a mini Linux computer. And I just know they're going to try and own my laptop because one of the guys previously tried to own on my cards, but I had a Wi-Fi protected wallet. And I know when I go over, they're going to try to own my laptop. So I thought I'd install it on there too. So really simple. It's a nice way to stop USB devices from bricking your machine. And uh yeah, you'll forget about it and then realize that shit's not working. And it's actually just your own security tripping you up.
0: Yeah, this was created in response to bad USB, wasn't it? Or at least it protects against bad USB.
3: Yeah, and I think the flapper can actually do that by default. So it's a wee bad USB device prober all the way. It can do all sorts, but yeah, that's one of them. I
0: know they're gonna try it on my laptop, so I just wanna get ahead of the game here. It does sound like it's gonna cause more problems than it fixes though, because how often are you actually gonna be vulnerable to this kind of attack versus how often are you gonna know, plug stuff in and go, why isn't it working?
3: Well, you didn't hear it, but Popey was on. I couldn't talk to him or hear him. And then Graham was on, and it only took me a while to actually get connected to the call earlier, and that's because my microphone wasn't.
2: Ah, I thought that was <laughs> me. I didn't realize it was you. No,
3: no, it wasn't. I was basically trying to type into the chat going, no, it's, it's definitely me. I know it's me, but you didn't see it. So, yeah, no, that was me. And that was
0: USB guard. Safe, yay. Graham, bin tracker.
1: Oh, yeah. So this is going back to audio, familiar territory. Bin Tracker, maybe as you can tell from the name, is a sound tracker clone. I think we've talked about sound trackers before. They're super popular on the Amiga. They kind of spawned a whole kind of culture of dance music, which you can still hear today. You can still get modern trackers like uh, Renoise, and there are lots of other trackers available. Trackers, it's like a spreadsheet of notes and effects. Back in the day on the Amiga, you could kind of almost copy and paste that spreadsheet into your code with an interpreter and, and the programmer could get the music for free and the musician could create brilliant music without worrying about the limitations of the computer. So there's a retro theme to trackers. Bin Tracker plays music on emulations of the old hardware and the old hardware, the sound generation, is... Modular. And then the really clever part about it is that it's using the emulations from MAME, the arcade emulator. And MAME has all of these brilliant recreations of old audio hardware, the SID chip on the Commodore 64, the Spectrum stuff, hundreds and hundreds of devices. So in principle, Bintracker can program the music on any of those devices through MAME from itself in a tracker interface. And that's what it does. The project's been going for quite some time, but it's kind of been in stasis with the developer rebooting it recently. And I gave it a go. And so you've got a tracker interface and you're programming spectrum audio with a tracker which you could never do back in the day. And it sounds brilliant because it's a perfect MAME recreation of the audio. And I think it's a really great idea for piggybacking on all the work that's been done in MAME to create these brilliant sound engines that we normally only hear by playing the game emulations of them.
0: It's been almost exactly a year since you talked about Furnace, which Ah, I think is quite similar to this.
1: That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing how many trackers there are. I mean, something similar to this actually is there's a hardware tracker with buttons that you can program from a screen. It's called Tracker. I think it's like the most popular device. Related to this, the people who developed Tracker released all of the firmware source as open source. So now anyone can hack on that device as well. It's a really great piece of kit. Trackers are still a thing. Okay, so a
3: novice question for those of us not in the know. When they recreate that in MAME, say, is that literally like a hardware, or rather a software abstraction of the
0: hardware?
1: For the audio stuff, I'm not sure what lengths they go to, but for the video components, they will often even X-ray the chips oh to God. try and work out the the Boolean logic to reference the other fine, to try and recreate the exact timing and all of subtleties of the output. And, then, and I'm sure they go to a lot of such lengths as well for the audio hardware because it always sounds really good if you've ever listened to the main recordings. And they, if you go through the main menus and look up the kind of audio options that are supportive for loads of devices, you can change everything think about like the components inside those mach- machines? So it sounds really accurate to me.
3: That's disturbing because you feel like you shouldn't maybe just X-ray a thing and then get the sound of it. That like it just sounds wrong. It feels like taking a photo of a Gibson and then suddenly you can play ACDC. Like it's it's weird.
1: Yeah, but it's 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 the it's the way that the circuits are built that they're trying to deconstruct, and then you can rebuild that in software. And if you know a tracker, then the columns are different kinds of effects. And those effects in bin tracker are kind of like, I think for the spectrum, you can change the duty cycle of a waveform because it's very primitive sound output. But in theory, How for a SID. How dare chip, you! <laughs> well, I mean, that's part of its charm. <laughs> yes. In theory, you'd have lots of options if the SID chip was supported, which I don't think it is yet.
2: So I noticed they've got uh, Windows builds and source code. Did you have to build it from source or is there a package somewhere?
1: I did actually build it from source code. It's using. Chicken, which I'd never really heard of before as some kind of build tool and really just have to, I did this on Ubuntu, just install the dependencies, they list and download the GitHub repo and then run the chicken command and it built fine. And then did you have to go and get some ROMs for the main half of things or did you not use that? I did. Um, so you can just install MAME from any package, and it'll pick it up because it just runs it in the background. And I think the Spectrum ROM is open source, or it it's, comes as part of MAME anyway. Yeah, it's in the, it's in the Debian archive, the Spectrum mm. ROMs. So, I mean, you can get up and started with that straight from the beginning. Nice. But yes, you'll need the ROMs if you want to use any of the other supported platforms.
0: Right, well, we are better get out of here then. Thank you once again for joining us, Popey. This is becoming a habit of yours.
2: I'm sorry. I'm not trying to make everyone ill.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, it's been great. Thanks a lot for filling in for Will. Hopefully he'll be back next time, but you won't be failing. You'll be away next time. I will be. I'll be in Scotland. So we'll need another guest and uh, it better not be you, Popey. <laughs> Hopefully someone else will volunteer. Watch this space. Right, well, anyway, until next week then, I've been Joe.
1: I've been Phanom. I've been Graham.
0: I've been Hopi. See you later.